What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. The Soundtrack Show with David W. Collins is about to begin. Beyond its soaring melodies, Jurassic Park is filled with musical and sonic nuances that set it apart from other films in the genre. This is The Soundtrack Show. Flaws in the system will now become severe. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and on this episode, we're continuing our journey through the film score for Jurassic Park, a Universal Pictures release from 1993 directed by Steven Spielberg, with a score by John Williams. In our last episode, we discussed two of the film's major themes, one which I called the island theme, and the other which I called the animals theme, or the dinosaur theme. As we discussed, both of these themes play against type. For a movie and book as intense and filled with scares as Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg and John Williams worked to make the film a celebration of the power of nature and life finding a way. We remember those two themes more than anything else in the film's score, but surprisingly, they're not used all that often. The amount of screen time is relatively low, but the impact is very, very high. For the island theme, we hear it when we first arrive on the island via helicopter. As an audience, we're transported with our main characters to the lush Isla Nublar a small, fictional island about 100 miles away from the Costa Rican mainland that Jurassic Park calls home. We're greeted with a glorious brass fanfare, with all the characteristics that we hear in Superman or Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark. We hear the theme in the movie in several key moments, once during that journey to the island, which is arguably the most important and most famous. But then again we hear it when Hammond's grandson Tim is getting to know Dr. Grant, his hero, before the tour begins. Thank you. 
This is the second time we hear this theme. It's a playful, fun rendition. That, however, is where the fun, lighthearted nature of this theme ends. The next time we hear it is long after the Tyrannosaurus Rex is attacked and an injured Malcolm, Hammond, Ellie, and the game warden Muldoon are in the basement and Muldoon opens the weapons locker. This is towards the very end of the film. And we get a very tense and tentative version. an interesting permutation there. We also get this melody again in the closing credits, of course, but probably the most important bookend of this theme beyond the closing credits is when, ironically, the T-Rex saves our main characters from the raptors at the end of the movie, thus completing the circle and the adventures on the island. I've decided not to endorse your park. So have I. For the other theme, the dinosaur's theme or the animal's theme, Besides the huge statement when the dinosaurs are first revealed to us, we get it as a lullaby in the middle of the film, as we discussed, and then towards the end of the movie, and of course, in the credits. But what else is happening musically in Jurassic Park? Certainly those themes are not the end of this film score. Well, I'd like to start with a theme for the predators. The predator dinosaurs, the T-Rex, and the raptors. They have a four-note motif or theme that plays that signals dread. Just four notes, and we know that we're in trouble. It kind of sounds like this. Interestingly enough, it is somewhat related to the hymn-like dinosaur theme that we've already discussed. It's almost the inverse. If I switch these two notes to this, and I just set it not quite in this key, but maybe down here, switch those notes, take this down a half step, 
They're related. You can see that the predator theme grows out of the main theme. We first hear this predator theme when the T-Rex is chasing the Jeep, the famous must-go-faster scene. Let's take a listen. Must go faster. From there, it dominates the film score throughout the latter part of the movie. Now that it's in your ear, or down here, you can hear it throughout the trip to the maintenance shed, the high wire stunts cue on the original soundtrack, and the raptor attack. There's even a little behind the scenes story that gives us another example of a director providing excellent feedback to a composer. This motif, meant for predators, was replaced in a very important part of the film. Here's another quote from soundtrack producer Michael Mattesino. Quote, Williams originally used this motif for the T-Rex's surprise return at the picture's climax during the raptor fight at the end, which we just talked about. But Spielberg elected to make the creature more heroic by inserting the island adventure theme. Audiences applauded the moment. End quote. But there's one more really cool spot that used this theme, this Predator's theme, and this is all Williams. While the end credits sequence is majestic and lifts us out of our seats at the end of the film, audiences are left with a hint of dread, of nature run out of control, of perhaps even a sequel at the very, very end of the credits. Those who stuck around to the very end were treated to a brow-raising nod to the power of the film's predators, helping establish Jurassic Park as a franchise with a subtle promise of more movies yet to come. And now for a brief intermission. And now, back to the soundtrack show. Sixth iteration. System recovery may prove impossible. Ian Malcolm. I want to chat about the intro to the film Jurassic Park. The opening impression that it gives us. Let's take a listen.
we get this loud drum hit, like a defibrillator shocking life into something ancient, asleep, and wild. This is followed by a swell of dissonant voices rising from silence into a loud crescendo, then going back into silence, or back into extinction. Then we get the thump again. Boom, a second shock of life. And this time, the voice awakens a little faster. Then a third shock, boom, followed by voices, but also by a crude flute or pipe playing a wild pitch, signifying the awakening, the beginning of a dangerous adventure. When you look at how the movie starts, this awakening, followed by pure action music for the movie's opening raptor attack, we can see now that the movie has two natures, <laughs> nature, forgive the pun, one that is majestic, but one that is wild and brutal. This balance, trying to control the wild side so that we can experience the majestic, is a metaphor in the score that the book and film themselves represent. There's a lot of wild action in the score, from the raptor attack at the beginning and the end, to the falling car cue, to Nedry's race to the dock. We are treated to pure Williams' action several times when the dino droppings hit the fan. Speaking of that character, Dennis Nedry, played by Wayne Knight, the score also departs from its normal orchestral sound in one key section. In the middle of the film, our majestic orchestral film score is betrayed by a synthetic, sneaky, almost mischievous piece of music as Nedry's corporate sabotage plays out. On the soundtrack, it's appropriately called Dennis Steals the Embryo. Let's take a listen. It's got this rhythmic ostinato, or repeating pattern, in 6-8 time. And it goes back and forth between 6-8 and 3-4 accents over 6-8. Similar to Leonard Bernstein's America track from West Side Story. And this pattern is given to us with synthesizers, technology, engineering, computers, not the nature of the park. It has some ominous strings and horns over the top, so it's a synth and orchestral hybrid, but the message is clear. The over-automated, understaffed park, the reliance on technology, and the corporate greed of its employees and creators can lead to very, very bad things indeed. There isn't another track like this in the entire movie. This track represents everything that brings Jurassic Park to its knees. Speaking of unique tracks in the movie, I have to take a moment to talk about one of my absolute favorite Williams moments in Jurassic Park. And it's a subtle one. 
Well, the music isn't subtle, but it's easy to gloss by that this is John Williams. On the expanded soundtrack, it's called Stalling Around. But in the movie, it's the Carl Stalling-esque Bugs Bunny homage that plays during the Mr. DNA cartoon sequence. Let's take a listen. You can hear certain moments, like Williams imitating car horns while DNA strands are whizzing by like traffic on screen. At one point, a dinosaur is created with DNA in the cartoon and you hear a funny little fanfare. This style is typical to that of the 1940s, when Warner Brothers animation was in its heyday, and is a wonderful homage to that old classic style. This is, after all, a movie within a movie. Quick sidebar here. I often find that when characters are consuming entertainment in films or TV, in other words, when we're kind of looking through the lens here, we're looking at characters who are then looking at their own entertainment. Whenever that happens, the entertainment that our characters are watching on screen tends to be outlandish. I'll give you an example. Anytime a character in a movie is, for example, playing a video game, it's almost always scored with bleeps and bloops and bips and bops, even though games have featured realistic sounds for more than 20 years now. I've often wondered why, but to my ear and in my experience, because I've actually perpetuated this, it's about communicating quickly and clearly that these sounds or this music is not sound emanating from the character's real world. It's, quote, fake for our characters too. And in order to keep that all from confusing us, the audience, creators of these things tend to paint these moments in a stylistically broad way to avoid any confusion. It just works. Oftentimes the results are, are actually pretty humorous and fun. And I think that this moment that Williams created for Mr. DNA is a great example of this, this exaggeration. There are some other thematic moments in Jurassic Park that I want to discuss. One is the music that we hear when life finds a way. First, when the raptor is hatching in the nursery out of its egg, we hear this ethereal music that is both beautiful but creepy, gentle but mysterious. Let's take a listen. Interestingly enough, right after this moment, Malcolm warns everyone that life will find a way, regardless of scientific precautions, such as breeding all females, and another one in the book, breeding the animals to be lysine deficient or lysine dependent. So later in the movie, when Dr. Grant and the kids, Tim and Lex, find dinosaur eggshells out in the wild, Grant realizes that Malcolm, when he said that earlier in the movie, was right. And how does this tie together with the previous scene? With music, of course. Williams revisits this ethereal music in this scene to tie the two together, further driving the point home. That's a great example of musical storytelling. And now for a brief intermission. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. Seventh iteration. Increasingly... 
The mathematics will demand the courage to face its implications. Dr. Ian Malcolm. You know, I want to give a quick peek behind the curtain of the soundtrack show to illustrate another point. Throughout this episode of the soundtrack show and the previous episode, I've been featuring these clips of Dr. Ian Malcolm giving us the iterative steps of a systemic collapse. The book does this before each of the novel's big sections. Now, I've been mostly using sound effects and voiceover. Special thanks, by the way, to my longtime friend and talented colleague, voiceover artist Aaron Bennett. I've been doing this to illustrate a core truth about the movie Jurassic Park. The sound design is responsible for half of the sonic suspense in this film. The film features these long, important stretches that have no music, surprisingly. The movie is carried by sound designer Gary Rydstrom, who invented the now iconic T-Rex roar, the sound of the raptors, the spitting Dilophosaurus, the sounds of the island itself. John Williams visited Gary Rydstrom at Skywalker Ranch before he began working on the film score, so he could hear the sounds that Gary was making. This would not be the last time these two would work together in this way to provide room for one another, AI being another great example years later. This way, Williams was able to make orchestral cues that didn't clash with the vocals of the dinosaurs. It probably explains why the T-Rex slash raptor slash predator theme is usually in the low brass, so that the treble and mid-range can be occupied by that thunderous T-Rex roar and the high-pitched squeals of the raptors. But we need to discuss the function of music in Jurassic Park. I want to do an experiment here. I'm going to ask you, the listener, to picture in your mind the most famous, intense scene in Jurassic Park. What's the first scene or even image of a scene that comes to the top of your mind when I ask you that? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that it's probably the T-Rex attack in the rain at the T-Rex pavilion. The scene lasts for nearly 10 solid minutes, starting around the hour mark of the film. Want to know a fascinating fact? The scene is completely, totally void of any music. The most suspenseful, frightening scene in the whole movie doesn't feature a note. We have the sound of rain, the T-Rex, bending, warping metal, our frightened characters, and so on and so forth, but no John Williams. Ironically, Williams re-enters the film only when the scene cuts back to the control room after, after all of that, when Samuel L. Jackson's character spits out this Techno babble for a solid 30 seconds, which, by the way, we don't hear a word of it. We just know that we're safe, finally. So relieved to have made it through the previous scene. We're giggling and releasing tension. That's when the music comes back in. This is the exact opposite of how dramatic music normally functions. Now, in this way, I think Jurassic Park is unique. Throughout the middle of the film, the most intense sequences are void of music. The raptors feeding in the cage when they drop that cow down. The entire T-Rex pavilion, like I just mentioned. The Gallimimus stampeding. Nedry's demise by the spitting Dilophosaurus in the rain by that little waterfall. Those all play with no music. There are some classic examples of music heightening suspense in the middle of the film, such as the end of the car crashing down the tree, but just the end, 
and the T-Rex Jeep chase, as I mentioned earlier. But so many big action scenes play with no music. So I thought it was definitely worth mentioning. Only towards the end of the movie does the music ratchet up in a way that we would normally expect. So next time you watch the movie, I want to challenge you to play a game of music or no music. If you do, the results might surprise you. Before we start to wrap up our look at Jurassic Park, I want to talk about what seems to be everyone's favorite musical subject ever since I did an episode on it. And that is Diasire. The musical word for death. Yes, it's in Jurassic Park, as some of you may remember. We're first introduced to it when Ellie and Muldoon search the T-Rex pavilion after the attack, announcing that the electrified fences are off. We hear music that quotes Diasire. I think this was Gennaro. I think this was too. Later, when Grant and the kids have to climb a fence, not knowing that Dr. Ellie Sadler and company are trying to restore power, we hear this suspenseful music, a setting of DSRA, again. It's a really clever use of doom and gloom by John Williams. But is it the only use of doom and gloom in Jurassic Park? I wonder. Let's revisit that animals theme one more time. Well, you play it like this. Okay. Then maybe if you play it in the relative minor key. Okay. But maybe I just adjust one note. guessed it. It's a version of Diasire. Now, is this a coincidence? Is this just clever poetic conceit? Is it even intentional? Am I just reading into it? Well, we may never know, as we weren't with Williams and Spielberg at the piano. But it is more than plausible, as it certainly isn't Williams' first use of it in a film score, let alone this film score, considering the other Diasire appearances I just played for you. But Man, I really do really, really like the idea, especially since he flipped it on its head, using a melody that's very close to DSRA to give life to the extinct, or more accurate when considering DSRA, giving new life to the dead, 
who had their judgment day, their day of wrath, their DSERA. He gives us this. And then he flips it on his head for the predator scene by reversing the order of the rocking notes. Fascinating stuff. One last story to help us appreciate the musical score for Jurassic Park and its creation. In the 40-plus years that Williams and Spielberg have been making movies together, this score for Jurassic Park is unique in that it is the only time that Spielberg was absent during the orchestral recording process. While Jurassic Park was in post-production in early 1993, Spielberg was on location in Poland, filming Schindler's List. It's hard to imagine, but all of the visual effects shots and all of the music and all of the sounds and the sound mix were directed by Spielberg remotely while he was in principal photography on a movie that couldn't be more opposite than Jurassic Park. Yet these two movies are forever linked because they were in production at the same time. Spielberg listened to tapes, cassettes, of William's score in the car to and from set on Schindler's List, and even flew on his weekends from Poland to a mixed stage in Paris, France, where Gary Rydstrom would meet him with the latest mix of a reel of the film, and Spielberg and Rydstrom would review the mix, with Spielberg giving director's notes. From there, Rydstrom would fly back to California to make the requested changes, and Spielberg would fly back to Poland for another week of filming. Here's a clip of Spielberg and Rydstrom, along with producer Kathleen Kennedy, describing the process. So he was on the set of Schindler's List. How he kept both those films in his mind, I don't know. What's really fun to me sometimes is just having something on a keyboard and performing it almost like music and watching the picture and giving it a try and seeing how it works. Gary Reitzman, Gary Summers were my sound guys on Jurassic Park. And they pretty much were left to their own creative devices. But I would travel on weekends from, from Krakow to Paris and Gary Reitzman would meet me at a re-recording studio in Paris, and he would preview all the reels that he had mixed in California. So I really was watching the evolution of Jurassic Park coming together when I would listen to and give notes on all the dub reels. It wasn't an ideal scenario as a filmmaker, but he's an extraordinary leader when it comes to organizing the way in which you can really shift your focus from one to the other. For their efforts, John Williams won his fourth Oscar in 1994 for his score for Schindler's List. Steven Spielberg finally won his Best Director Oscar for Schindler's List. But Gary Rydstrom won both Best Sound and Best Sound Effects Editing for Jurassic Park, his third and fourth Oscars, after having also won both for Terminator 2 Judgment Day just two years prior. He would go on to win three more, two for Saving Private Ryan and one for Titanic. Jurassic Park, in my opinion, is a unique film in that it carefully balances heart with action in an unexpected way musically. The film score is the emotional engine to this movie. While the action perhaps is best represented by sound design and visuals, but together they make one heck of a movie. And it's very unique by today's standards. It represents a director using music in unexpected ways adding his own taste to a standard monster movie, or what could have been a standard monster movie, but isn't. That addition of emotion, 
In addition to the stories behind the story, such as finishing the film while shooting the most intense movie of Spielberg's career, Schindler's List, to a massive breakthrough in movie-making effects with CGI at ILM, is why Jurassic Park endures. That and the continued performances of Jurassic Park's two main themes in concert halls around the world. I want to close with an email that I got from Jeff all about the impact of Jurassic Park's score. Dear David, As with many of your listeners, Jurassic Park was my introduction to the world of film scores. As a 10-year-old, I begged my dad to take me and my younger brother to see Jurassic Park, which he thought would be too scary for young boys our age. Eventually, he gave in and took us to see it. We were blown away. From then on, we lived and breathed Jurassic Park. When the film came out on VHS, I popped it in the VCR almost every day after school for months on end. Shortly after the theatrical release, I was riding to school on the bus and sat next to a boy who had headphones on, listening to his Sony Walkman. From my seat, I could just make out a vaguely familiar tune. I asked what he was listening to, and he told me it was the soundtrack to Jurassic Park. Up to that point, it had never occurred to me that someone would listen to a movie soundtrack for fun. But though muted, I loved the adventurous fanfare I was hearing emanating from his headphones. I later learned it was the track Journey to the Island. The following Christmas, my parents gave me an audio cassette tape of the Jurassic Park soundtrack. I listened to it constantly, and from there was eventually introduced to Star Wars, E.T., Indiana Jones, and many other classic John Williams soundtracks as well as soundtracks from other composers. While I love the entire Jurassic Park score, my favorite track is probably Remembering Petticoat Lane. Like other cues in the score, including My Friend the Brachiosaur and A Tree for My Bed, Petticoat Lane is rich with a sentimentality that gives Jurassic Park meaning and heart beyond that of a typical horror film. Yes, yes, I agree. One of the more unique tracks in comparison to the rest of the score is Dennis Steele's The Embryo. Even though I've heard criticism that it is very similar to Williams' own The Conspirators from JFK, I'd be interested in hearing your rebuttal to claims of self-plagiarism in general as it relates to Williams' scores. Sure, I'd love to get to that sometime. It is a pleasure to listen to the soundtrack show each week. Thank you for producing such an excellent podcast. I hope it continues for many years to come. Jeff from Arizona. P.S. I'm looking forward to you circling back to The Last Jedi and Solo someday to complete what you started with Star Wars Oxygen. Ah, we'll get there. Don't you worry, Jeff. We'll get there on the soundtrack show. We have so many other movies, TV shows, theater pieces, and games to cover. And yes, so many worthy composers and creatives. This wraps up our look at Jurassic Park for now. And I hope you've enjoyed revisiting Isla Nublar as much as I have. Life finds a way. Thank you. Thank you.